From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Two years after Major League Baseball pulled the All-Star game out of Atlanta as a protest over Georgia's then-new voting law, the game will be back in 2025. I'm Tia Mitchell. The deal to prevent a government shutdown is signed, sealed, and delivered. I'll recap a whirlwind week in Congress and what it took to get the funding to keep the country open. I'm Greg Bluestein. why one defendant in Fulton County's election interference case could be thrown into jail. And it's Friday, which means we answer your questions from the listener mailbag and go through who's up and who's down. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Well, Greg Bluestein and Tia Mitchell, we come to the end of another consequential week in Georgia politics. But Greg, as the baseball fan in this group, you must be thrilled that the All-Star Game is coming to Atlanta in 2025. Yeah, take the politics out of it, right? Just as a purist baseball fan who wants to bring his daughters to the game and sit in the outfield doing the home run derby and just enjoy all the revelry around it, I can't be more thrilled. That'll be a great moment. And we're going to talk more about it on the uh, podcast, the political complications that surrounded it. Tia, I don't know if you're a sports fan or not, and especially I don't know if – Whatever sports you followed in Atlanta, you now have teams in Washington that you are following. So I tend to collect teams in my various cities. So I'm a Jacksonville Jaguars fan. That's my NFL team. Then I lived in Tampa for a little bit. So I claimed the Tampa Bay Rays, but, you know, not I didn't live there that long. So I definitely claimed the Braves. I have a world championship shirt. Um, and then I never really, I started to claim the Hawks in Atlanta. That was kind of the Atlanta team that I definitely said I was going to stick with. So, you know, I, I consider myself Braves, Hawks, Jaguars. But when it comes to college football, it's Rattlers, right? You know, it's Rattlers. And then my hometown, the Louisville Cardinals. All right, Patia, here's the question. With all those teams that you follow, are you a Fairweather fan? Do you like have enough of them so that when one of them is winning, you really follow them more closely. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm a pretty much fair weather fan. I'll admit that. I'll, I'll I go to usually I go to a couple of Jaguar games a season. I haven't been able to make it down there this season, um, but last year I went to like three or four Jaguar games. So you know, and of course my Rattlers are far away, but. I um, am hoping they make it to the Celebration Bowl in Atlanta in December. So um, they have one more game they need to win to make it to the game in Atlanta. So hopefully I will be able to see my Rattlers in person. All right, we got to have one last sports note before we turn to the business of politics. Greg Bluestein, not only the Braves, tomorrow the Bulldogs have another crucial game that I'm sure you'll be really invested in, Tennessee. Yeah, and it's my favorite road game to go to. I'm usually at this road game every other year, whenever they have it, but this year I will be at an event. I'll be actually um, interviewing Adam Kinzinger, the former Republican congressman. At the Atlanta Jewish Book Festival, up at the Marcus JCC for people who want to come if there are still tickets available. Exactly. So we'll be uh, we'll be doing that interview, but also we'll have one eye on the Georgia Tennessee yeah, game. Yeah, only football team in the country I can watch because those guys execute with such extraordinary skill. It's a joy to watch them. All right, that's enough. We're going to get to politics because this is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. We're also joined uh, really happily by Representative Terry Anulowitz, a Democrat who represents uh, Smyrna, where the All-Star Game will be played in 2025. And um, Terry, we're going to get into that with you in just a minute. But first, thanks so much for being here for Politically Georgia. I am delighted to be here. This is so warm and happy and wonderful to be looking at y'all through the Zoom. Um, 
we're glad you could be here. All right, so let's get right to it. Um, Greg, I think it's probably important to go back in time and talk about why we on a political program are talking about how exciting it is that the All-Star Game is going to be played here in 2025. Remind us of the history. Yeah, as much as I'd like to just come here and talk about Ronald Acuna winning the MVP <laughs> last night, which he was well-deserved and unanimous, uh, the, the the baseball delved very deeply into politics back in 2021. I'll never forget it because I was in spring break in Savannah when the news emerged that the league yanked the game from Truist Park uh, in protest of Georgia's new election law, SB202 is what it's known as, under pressure at the time. Remember, there was players saying they might not play in the game if it was held in Atlanta, politicians. President Biden even endorsed a boycott of the game. And of course, that led to Republican backlash. Uh, former President Donald Trump quickly called on his supporters to do their own boycott of baseball. And to me, if there is a turning point, there is a moment where Governor Kemp started to gain steam. Because remember, at the time in 2021, he was being booed at Republican rallies. He was faced with all sorts of questions about the souring, the tensions and the souring atmosphere between him and, and Donald Trump. And he held he held a press conference at the Capitol um, the day after this announcement came out. And if, if you ask his aides, that's the moment his poll numbers started to rebound, basically saying that, uh, that, that baseball was trying to beat up on Georgia. Terry, um, for you back then, this was a somewhat complicated matter, given that you have constituents who uh, could have uh, benefited from the All-Star game being played back then. But you were also among those concerned about what SB202 might do to the participation of minority voters um, uh, in the uh, following election. That's right. And it it was such a heated time, like Greg said. It was very messy. It was almost like a rhetorical food fight, right, between the the Democrats and the Republicans. We had we had just come out of this very heated legislative session. It I mean, this was in the immediate aftermath of of the session. I mean, that most of the paper probably had not been swept off of the floor of the chambers after Sonny die, and we get this news that MLB was pulling the all-star game. And I and I I have to imagine that on the MLB side of things, they were trying to do their own damage control because they did have their employees, their players who were very unhappy about SB202, which is still in effect and is still, I believe, a very onerous and entirely unnecessary piece of legislation, right? This happened in the 2021 session. Immediately after the 2020 election, you had this whole line of fallacy of, of you know, talking about the the election fraud and Trump trying to stop the steal. I mean, this was all very much impacting Georgia politics and impacting everything in Georgia politics. And I think that SB202 was an attempt from some of the Republicans, I think from some of them to try to calm down that sort of stop the steal line of thinking, but also from others to perpetuate the notion that voting in Georgia was not safe when we know that voting in Georgia in 2020 was completely safe. There was no voter fraud. There was no widespread voter fraud. Nothing bad was happening. Nothing unseemly happened with drop boxes. Of course, ballot drop boxes were greatly reduced with SB202. So that was sort of the context of where this came from. Then the MLB pulled out and then everything, yeah, I mean, everything just went to hell. And I remember sitting there thinking, I've got constituents who are going to be very negatively impacted by this, right? Like the MLB pulling out the baseball game ultimately didn't hurt any elected official, right? But it really did have a negative impact on all of the small businesses, especially, but the hospitality industry who were, they were planning on having, like this was, they had budgeted for this, right? This was part of what they were planning for the year. And that was, a, it was a real blow. So I wanted to ask you, we saw that a lot of Republicans, you know, we led the jolt today about how Republicans are kind of gloating over the the gang coming back and how that proves there was never an issue. Do you think it is kind of a a sign of defeat, so to speak, for Democrats? Or how are you responding to Republicans, including Governor Kemp, saying, see, there was never a problem in the first place? I think that to say there was never a problem in the first place really diminishes the level of emotion and tension that we had during that time. I mean, the reason that Brian Kemp's poll numbers were so low prior to this, right, was because he had the audacity to affirm 
that there wasn't actually any widespread voter fraud in Georgia. I think that it is very convenient now, two years later, to say, oh, see, there was never any problem when we all know, because we all lived through this, that it was a very tense period of time. And I, I, I just don't think we can understate the importance of how tense that time was. And I, yeah, that law is still in effect. I think hopefully now that things have cooled down, you know, we've had two years to to process this legislatively. We are still trying to work on some, hopefully some fixes for some of the onerous parts of SB 202. But I think that what this means is that there is more of an understanding that when you have an issue with something that's happening in a state, you know, whether it's voter laws, whatever it might be, the solution isn't always going to be to just withdraw, right? It's not going to be to quite literally take your ball and go home. It's to maybe be a part of a conversation. What are the problems? You know, why? what were the concerns that the MLB employees, the players had with SB202? What are the greater issues here? And maybe if we're just going to stay and participate and be a part of Georgia, try to help these communities, maybe that's a more effective thing than just leaving. I don't think that there's any kind of defeat. I don't think this changes any of the concerns that any Democrat has about SB202. I think it is more just people realizing that there is an economic aspect to these major events, and that can't be understated. Terry, I, I know Greg wants to jump in. Let me ask you one quick question to follow up on, on what you just said, though. Um, does that mean that back as Major League Baseball made this decision, you were one of those who thought it was a bad choice and had you been given an opportunity to talk to MLB about whether they should or shouldn't you would have said no we need you here it's more important that you you maintain that we'll work on this in other ways absolutely in fact yesterday afternoon after I got word that the MLB all-star game was coming back I went back and pulled yep. the articles where I was quoted the tweets that I had said I was like oh thank you 21 Terry for really being kind of spot on with how 2023 Terry is looking at this now. I was like, this is not, I was like, guys, come on, stay, play the game. Like, this is a big deal for my community. It's a big deal for Atlanta. And again, you know, it's not going to hurt my, my family's economic bottom line if the all-star game isn't coming here, but that's because I'm not someone who owns a restaurant at the battery. I'm not someone who works at one of the hotels. Right. And again, they were planning, they had made their plans for the year based on what they anticipated the revenues were going to be from the All-Star game. That has a huge impact. So, no, I was very, very much like, please don't leave. Please don't do this. Uh, it, you know, absolutely. We're here with State Representative Terry Anulowitz, a Smyrna Democrat whose district includes Truist Park. And yes, uh, you are right. We quoted you extensively at the time as one of those Democratic voices. And there was this 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 did become, excuse the pun, but this did become a political football during the governor's race too. But my question for you is, do you think all that democratic rhetoric, Jim Crow 2.0 that we heard from President Biden and some of his, his allies, do you think it wound up causing damage um, and, and uh, to, to, to those who legitimately, you know, who did criticize the law, but did it kind of raise the temperature or do you think that's still a legitimate concern that this is a form as some Democrats, I don't think you've ever said it, but some Democrats have said this is Jim Crow 2.0. Yeah, that is actually a phrase that I have personally never used. I try to not be hyperbolic, especially when something is a very, very tense thing. I'm not saying it's necessarily hyperbole to say it's Jim Crow 2.0, but that is a very heated thing to say. I mean, that there there is a lot of history. There's a lot of context to using that phrase. And, and I felt like it was almost throwing a rhetorical grenade into the conversation. And there might be better words that can be used when you're having those conversations. But no, I mean, I think the bottom line is that we know there was not any voter fraud in 2020. We know that Nothing needed to be fixed. Like SB202 was entirely, completely unnecessary because voting was already secure in Georgia. And I think that part of the reason why Republicans continue to say that we've got to make sure Georgians know voting is secure in Georgia is because it's been Republicans who, especially after the 2020 election, kept going to you know their community organizations, their county party meetings, talking about all this widespread fraud which has been proven over and over and over again, simply did not happen. So the reality is that there was no basis for SB202. There is still no need for SB202. And all it's done is made it harder for people to vote, particularly as it, as it relates to absentee voting, voting by mail, 
and the drop boxes. And we also know we're going to have some really opportunities for people to really sow chaos in future major elections because of the provisions in SB 202. So, Representative, I did want to ask you about um, a little bit different topic, redistricting. The special session will be starting soon. Um, we know Democrats don't have much of a voice uh, to really influence the maps, but what is going to be your role? What do you hope happens? My special session strategy <laughs> as much as you can have a strategy and something where you're you are you know for all intents and purposes right i am i am observing this i do chair the cobb county legislative delegation though we are a majority democratic delegation in a majority republican general assembly and none of the districts that have been none of well i'll take this back none of the house and senate none of the general assembly districts that were identified in judge jones's ruling are in Cobb County, but there are a couple that are adjacent to Cobb County, some that previously had had parts of Cobb County. So I'm going to really make sure that the member, I mean, my, my members in the Cobb delegation are very aware of wh where their district lines are so they can be aware of as we have this sort of ripple effect that happens when you're making changes to districts, just so they can be aware of what communities might be impacted in their districts. I think that's someone something that every member of the General Assembly is going to be keeping an eye out, just, you know, keeping tabs on those communities of interest that we we tend to know pretty well because we're on the ground in our districts. And congressionally, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens because that is going to impact Cobb County because a couple of the districts identified um, have, you know, you have the sixth congressional district, which is part of Cobb County, the 11th, the 13th, I mean, you have all of these districts that have an, a part of Cobb County. So I'm going to be watching closely to see again, you know, how are the communities of interest going to be impacted in Cobb County, specifically one of the communities of interest we hear a lot about is, and one of the questions I got this at a town hall meeting I attended last night is, why is part of South Cobb County and Marjorie Taylor Greene's congressional district? <laughs> and, that's, and I'm like, that's a good question. And let's talk about communities of interest. And, and so, you know, making sure that again, I think as someone, I'm not going to have any kind of a hands-on role, right, in this redistricting. That's just the reality of being in the minority party in Georgia. But I do want to make sure that the communities of interest in the part of the county that I do represent, that they are, you know, those needs are going to be to be considered. Representative, the redistricting session starts November 29th, the Wednesday after Thanksgiving. We might not even see maps, proposed maps for how these districts could look like until right around then. So talk to me about the mood of lawmakers like yourself. You know, your district could be redrawn, maybe not majorly, but, may, but maybe. Are people apprehensive or people nervous or people anxious right now, whether they be Democrats or Republicans? I think all of those things. And I and I think that's a, what you just said is very important. Democrats and Republicans are going to be impacted by this. If you look at the list of districts that are that were found by the judge to be in violation of Section two of the Voting Rights Act, we know that there are districts that are currently represented by Republicans, districts that are currently represented by Democrats. And we know that the most important thing is making sure that, you know, we do have equitable and fair voting districts here in Georgia. And I do think that I imagine every one of us would like to avoid the prospect of having a special master draw the maps like we know what's happened in Alabama. We're fortunate, right, in Georgia, we're doing this after Alabama has been through this process. We've seen what's happened next door. And we I think there are some things that we would probably prefer to not have happen in Georgia. So and, and, you know, you know, in hearing what what House leadership has said, what Speaker Burns has been saying, it seems clear that I think the intent of the House is to make sure that we are trying to remain within the spirit of what the judge has laid out in his order. I mean, his ruling, it is 516 pages. It's 516, 516 five more something. than 500 pages. Yeah. yeah. Five something. It's a lot. Uh, it's a doorstop. <laughs> but he is very specific about, you know, which districts are impacted. And, and the ruling is also very specific about what the possible remedies are. And so I think that hopefully we'll be able to go in there, you know, get some apps, go through the process. It's going to be emotional. It's going to be tough for, I think, everyone who's involved. It's going to be, I think, probably similar to what the state went through in 2001, right? But just sort of a mirror image of that, right? So I think that hopefully we will have the warmth of the holiday season <laughs> to guide us and keep us happy and 
and and positive. While you can we go dream. Yeah. <laughs> Terry, I'm, I'm always optimistic. Terry, um, Greg actually said something that hints at a reality that you as a Democrat face in the legislature. He said you might not even see maps till you show up on November 29th. But the reality is you may not see maps that soon, as has happened in the past. Republicans who control uh, the legislature can uh, work on their maps without Democratic involvement and spring them on you at a moment's notice, giving you far less time and and meaning you have to really intensely study what they've tried to do to get a handle on it. Am I correct about that? That is 100% correct. It's like, surprise, here's your district. Hope you like it. Because <laughs> it doesn't matter if you do or not. So. So, yes, that is, you know, and again, that's why it's really important if you are in the General Assembly, you need to know your district. And I think all of us pretty much do. But you've got to know those boundaries. You've got to know the natural <coughs> boundaries. You've got to know, too, if there is a line that is drawn that, you know, if it bisects a neighborhood, you know, you we, we have natural, you know, you there are sort of like major thoroughfares, right? Like in my community, Atlanta Road is a major thoroughfare. <laughs> Spring Road is a major thoroughfare. You know, 40, US 41, South Cobb Drive, you've got the railroad track, we know where the creeks are, like what are sort of the natural dividing lines of your community so you can sort of know how to hopefully avoid splitting a neighborhood into, you know, because that's always something that it's hard when you're drawing the maps at a more macro level, you're not necessarily having the input of the micro level. So when we do see those maps is when we can say, hey, maybe we can make this, this one little change to make sure that all these people who their kids walk to the same elementary school to every, you know, every morning, can we get them in the same district? Representative, we've got to hit a quick break soon. But before we go, were you heartened to hear Speaker John Burns on Politically Georgia just a few days ago say that he expects lawmakers to comply with the judge's order to, to kind of meet the basis of the judge's order? Oh, I was heartened and I was not surprised. Right. I mean, the House really has been running away. And, and this is, I think, one of the legacies of the late Speaker Ralston is is that, you know, the House and I, th- I think Speaker Burns is making it very clear that the House has every intention of staying within the spirit of this ruling. And again, it, it is a very specific ruling. And so, yeah, I'm heartened. I'm encouraged. I think that, you know, there are going to be some very tough decisions that have to be made in both parties and by a lot of members. That is always part of the redistricting process. But but I, I am going into this very optimistically. Terry Nullowitz, what a lovely thing to say to close this out um, in the week before Thanksgiving, an optimistic Democrat <laughs> facing uh, redistricting that'll be run by Republicans. We're really grateful that you joined us uh, today. And we look forward to talking to you again as we continue our show here on WABE. Thanks so much, Terry Inolowitz. Thank you so much. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. And to you as well. You're listening to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Greg, I just got a note from Natalie, and you'll know what it's about. She says, start with Greg on Trump before going to Tia on what happened in Congress this week. Yeah, I think there's some technical difficulties down in Washington or up in Washington. Um, But yeah, Bill, let's talk about this unique (laughs) movement in the Donald Trump election interference case, uh, because we had this, I think, rather extraordinary motion uh, by District Attorney Fonnie Willis, to revoke the bond of Harrison Floyd, one of the 15 remaining defendants, which could lead to Harrison Floyd being literally thrown in jail um, if he's found to be in violation of the very strict orders of his bond uh, bond proceedings, which includes, I think the number one thing is, don't intimidate, don't do anything that could be seen as intimidation of witnesses. Yeah. Um, this is also the defendant who has decided that his defense is going to be, no, really, the election was stolen, and I'm going to have my attorney present evidence that that's the case. This is uh, someone who apparently 
just doesn't give up easily, Greg. <laughs> yeah, and we're seeing, you know, he he is he has a, a Twitter. Harrison Floyd has a Twitter following of about twenty five thousand people on his social media accounts. And one of the stipulations, again, was don't do anything that could be seen as harassing or intimidating witnesses or other people, the prosecution team. And he's been tweeting about Fonnie Willis. He's been tweeting about Ruby Freeman. He's been tweeting about other people involved in this case. And prosecutors are watching this very, very closely. And so we're going to see a hearing in the next few days where, again, the outcome could be either more stipulations, more penalties, or potentially uh, someone like Harrison Floyd, Harrison Floyd go, going back into jail. You know, Tia, really, we also know, of course, that this in some ways mimics Donald Trump, who has repeatedly on social media attacked those who are court officers, uh, lawyers, uh, the special prosecutor, Fonnie Willis, on his social media. So Harrison Floyd just sort of following his leader, Donald Trump. Except Donald Trump wants the non-harassment clauses became part of his bond agreement, we saw him pipe down a little bit. Same thing with the gag orders in some of these other cases. Once the judges said, you can't say these things, I don't think Donald Trump wants to spend a night at jail. I think, so we haven't seen that from Donald Trump as much. Now there have been some some complaints that he's crossed the line. Um, and so will it remains to be seen if he can stay within within the guidelines, but I think he's definitely toned it down at the very least. I think it's also worth noting Harrison Floyd, for better or for worse, was the only one of the 19 defendants. Remember when he was mm-hmm. turning himself in, he had to spend some time in jail because he couldn't make his bond um, or he didn't have bond initially. And now it appears that he's the one most willing to risk going back. He couldn't find an attorney. He came to court for his arraignment without an attorney. It was certainly uh, part of what happened uh, to him there. Uh, Greg, he's the former head of Black Voice for uh, Trump. And um, he was one of the people who tried to pressure Ruby Freeman and uh, her daughter, Shay Moss, into acknowledging that they had lied when they said they didn't do anything to rig the Fulton County election outcome. Yeah, and he says he did nothing wrong and, and has pleaded not guilty, but you're exactly right. He's one of those defendants. That, this is such a sprawling case. And so we've talked about some of the defendants that were involved in Coffee County, the data breach. We've talked about others that were involved in the alternate electorate plot. Uh, this, uh, Harrison Floyd was involved, uh, allegedly, he's charged with being involved in intimidating uh, those two Fulton County election workers whose lives were literally ups- turned upside down or upended by all these false claims that they were somehow uh, rigging the vote when in fact, you know, the evidence showed that they were handing each other a ginger mint yeah. uh, on video. Um, yeah. But Harrison Floyd, as you mentioned, he showed up on August 24th without a lawyer or a bond agreement. He was the lone defendant to spend time in jail. He was released a couple days later after his, lo- his he got a lawyer and that lawyer negotiated a $100,000 bond. All right. Um, we'll, we'll watch to see next early next week. Uh, Harrison Floyd could end up spending Thanksgiving in prison, in jail. Yeah, and this is such a tricky dividing line, too, because all these other defendants who were, who were released on bond have similar stipulations, Bill. Mm-hmm. And we've seen the, the Georgia GOP hold events called Fulton Defense Fund yeah. events all over the state to raise money for legal defense. And one of them is going to be held this weekend on Saturday up in uh, up in the exurbs of Georgia. And we've seen some in Banks County and others. And at those events, you see David Schaefer, who is also uh, charged with being part of the alternate elective plot. He said he has done nothing wrong, but he spoke, he speaks at these events. And so watching what they say, they have to walk that line because they can't do anything that's seen as intimidating, but they also want to defend themselves. Oh, that's really a good point. Thank you for uh, mentioning that. Tia Mitchell, uh, your, your chaos came to at least a temporary end on the Hill when the new Speaker of the House was finally able to uh, pass a continuing resolution, an unusual two-part uh, continuing resolution with the help of Democrats. And maybe even more important than the fact that he was able to get the votes to pass the resolution, the uh, continuing resolution is... He wasn't thrown out of the speakership after bringing Democrats in. Yeah, he wasn't thrown out, but there are conservative hardliners (laughs) 
who are not happy with the continuing resolution, it is not very different from what Kevin McCarthy worked with Democrats to pass at the end of September. The only real difference is instead of there being one deadline, there are two for when government funding now runs out. Some agencies were extended until January, and then the rest of the agencies have two more weeks beyond that. But otherwise, it's the exact same legislation that was passed under Kevin McCarthy and that led to his ouster as speaker. And so a lot of those same conservatives that didn't like what McCarthy did let it be known they didn't like what Johnson did, but instead of ousting him, at least for now, they're just making his life a little difficult. So um, the bill was passed on Wednesday morning, and then, no, the bill was passed on Tuesday, and then on Wednesday, there was another meltdown on the floor yeah. with um, <laughs> appropriations legislation yeah. being blocked by Republicans. So that was kind of what, this was like, before McCarthy was ousted, there were shenanigans on the floor. So what Speaker, the the kind of the continuum where Speaker Johnson is, he's not at ouster yet. He's at shenanigans on the floor level. <laughs> Tia, it reminds us, though, it's a lot harder to be in leadership than it is to be a hardliner in leadership than to be a hardliner from the back benches, which is kind of where Mike Johnson came from. He, he was in a minor leadership role, but he wasn't front and center. And now, right now, as you mentioned, he's in a honeymoon phase, right? It seems like um, the hardliners in his party are more willing to give him a little bit more leeway than they certainly were of Speaker McCarthy. But he's following Speaker McCarthy's roadmap. Tia, one of the things I want to ask to follow up on what Greg just said, um, and you can help us with this, um, there has been, of course, a lot of talk about the fact that Mike Johnson ascended to this job with very little experience. Um, he's not a veteran of the U.S. House. And so he comes up with this two-part plan um, that wins support, gets through. Did you see anything, or and your colleagues up there, do you think you saw anything in him that suggests maybe he's a more savvy guy than some people had thought he would be given that he's still fairly new to Congress? No. And I'm not saying he's <laughs> not savvy. I'm just saying that's not necessarily what people are saying about him right now. They're mostly saying he's still trying to get, you know, get his feet, um, get his legs, if you will, in this really new role to Greg's point, a role that he was not preparing for, that he was not being trained for. So he's really having to learn on the fly. He talked about it as drinking from a fire hose for three weeks. Um, I will say that this two-pronged approach, that was not his plan. It came from the House Freedom Caucus. So he embraced it to try to appease the hardliners. And then when it came time for a vote, the Freedom Caucus uh, sent out a letter saying they opposed it anyway. Um, because again, for them, it didn't go far enough. The two prongs was one thing, but the fact that it didn't cut spending, it didn't include any of these conservative conservative policy writers on things like um, LGBTQ policy or um, limiting access to abortion because it inc included none of those things. It didn't include new limits on immigration at the southern border. They still opposed it, um, but he was trying to appease them. It didn't go far enough. And again, that's the same thing that McCarthy faced. Now, the difference, I think, it's not so much with Speaker Johnson savvy, it's the relationships. They like him more than they like Kevin McCarthy. They trust him at this point more than they trusted Kevin McCarthy. That's what's sustaining him. Well, there was another episode, two episodes on the Hill, Greg, this week, which suggest that Republicans just are still at war with each other. Uh, one is Kevin McCarthy uh, giving a apparently an elbow to the kidneys yeah. of one of the right wingers, uh, uh, Congressman um, Chanel from uh, uh, Tennessee. Is that is that the right way way to say his name, uh, Tia? I thought the um, it was Burchett. Oh, I'm um, sorry, it was Burchett that, from Tennessee. Um, exactly, it was Burchett. Thank you, thank you. Um, that's why you're the expert on the Hill. So McCarthy apparently elbows Burchett in the kidneys on the way past him in the hall because Burchett had opposed uh, McCarthy continuing uh, as a, a speaker. 
And McCarthy says, no, that never happened. But there have been a couple of other incidents where McCarthy's kind of been physical. He bumped shoulders with people on the Hill that he's had feuds with on other occasions. And then we have this fight in the in the Senate um, with the senator from, from Oklahoma. Oklahoma, Mark Wayne uh, uh, Mullen, Mullen. Uh, challenging the head of the UAW to a fist fight, they both stand up in a committee meeting and say they're ready to go at each other until the chair of that committee uh, <laughs> says, get sit down, you are a member of the United States Senate. This is getting to be crazy. Yeah, and I know there's episodes in our in U.S. history, certainly we yeah. can look back to you know horrible uh, things that happened in the 1800s and that make this look like um, you know, minor conflagrations. But look, this is this is a sign of the the more bellicose language. Even when we in the media say we battle a feud, right? There, these aren't wars, but we're certainly seeing more escalating, intensifying rhetoric, even among fellow Republicans, right? This, that's what's unique about this. This yeah. isn't Democrat versus yeah. Republican. These are Republicans who are jawing at each other. At least in the case of uh, Kevin McCarthy and his incident with the, with Burchett. Um, and and we've been seeing this sort of intensify on the floor with Republican and Republican fighting. And certainly, look, you know, we haven't seen Democrats th- throwing blows at each other, but the Democratic rhetoric is in- intensifying as well in some senses. Uh, you, what's interesting about the Burchett incident to me, uh, uh, Tia, is Burchett is very, very clear that he, that Christian values are really the most important thing that drive his life. And certainly... He would be, um, in most instances, a love-thy-neighbor kind of guy. But he's not gone in that direction since the incident with uh, Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, and I think I got the sense reading the coverage that Burchett was just kind of fed up. It also didn't help that this whole thing unfolded in front of a journalist, um, a reporter for NPR. So it wasn't even a he said, he said scenario. There were witnesses, uh, which was kind of bold on McCarthy's point. Um, But also, I think that allowed Burchett to say, like, okay, Everyone knows it happened. Now I can talk about my reaction and not be second guessed. I will say that um, Punchbowl News um, did, they talked to a bunch of retiring members about why they decided to step down after this term. And over and over again, these are Republicans just talking about how frustrated they are working in Washington, how little they feel like they're getting done um how much of a sideshow it is representative ken buck called it unserious mm-hmm. um and we've heard that over the years that it's getting um harder and harder and less and less fun we hear that there but i think the current house majority the thin majority the drama of this year is really driving a lot of people away and it's troubling for the interpersonal reasons, the drama, but it's also troubling because you're losing um, institutional knowledge, particularly in seats Republican or Democratic that are not competitive. You get people who represent more of the extremes. That makes it even harder to govern going forward. Yeah. And Tina, how many, how many lawmakers, how many Republican lawmakers do we talk to over the weeks long speaker limbo that were just done with it? You know, and especially if you're in a district, if you're if, if you're kind of looking to move on anyway, you're that much more likely um, to, to, to kind of hang it up. But also, I'll say that all this sort of intensifying rhetoric also helps gin up your base, too. And I'm looking at a picture right now from Congressman Rich McCormick of Georgia. Uh, he tweeted uh, with with Mark Wayne Mullen, the senator we were just talking about. It shows them both kind of in workout clothes and saying, helping Mark Wayne Mullen prepare for his next committee hearing. So... Even as we have, you know, some people horrified by the threats of, you know, the, the, the infighting and the, the actual, you know, physical feuding, it also serves to gin up voters, too, in some sense. Yeah, but I think what we're going to watch closely over the year, in 2024, Republicans should do fine incumbents in, in most of their primaries because they're in gerrymandered districts. But in the long run, 
how is the way Republicans have handled being in the majority in the U.S. House uh, since uh, winning it over? How is it going to affect voters in the general election in November? We'll watch that very carefully. You're listening to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. No media organization in Atlanta swarms politics like the AJC. We produce this podcast and the Politically Georgia newsletter, and now we have the new Politically Georgia PM Update newsletter. Make it your afternoon appointment to get caught up on what's going on while you're at work. You can get it in your inbox for free every weekday afternoon. Just go to AJC.com slash Politically Georgia Newsletter. That's all one word, all spelled out. AJC.com slash Politically Georgia Newsletter. Um, you know, over the years, when Greg Bluestein first by himself and with Patricia Murphy uh, were doing the Politically Georgia podcast, uh, they learned that many listeners have questions about Georgia politics and about the news that they were covering. So uh, now that all four of us are together, We've set up the Politically Georgia call-in hotline so you can ask questions. Every Friday, we'll play those questions uh, so and then try to answer them to the best of our ability. You can call the Politically Georgia hotline anytime at 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. Leave your question. Shaney B., as we get to the first one, let's make a clear. There's a, a rule you've established. If you don't leave a name, Shaney <laughs> B. is going to make one name. up for you. That's right. That is right. But you know what? Uh, looking over the calls this week, Everybody behaved. So well done to our Politically Georgia listeners. Uh, let's uh, start with our first phone call here. This comes from Jim, who is a poll worker in Roswell. I worked as a poll worker on Tuesday, and uh, we had someone from the uh, voter place, whatever they came, and they were inspecting our what we were doing, and they told us, that next year there's going to be a presidential primary and then another primary afterwards for all the other seats. And that just didn't seem to make sense to all of us who are working there. And I was curious if that was true. Well, Jim, great question. And and first of all, thank you for serving as a poll worker, literally the cogs of our democracy. We couldn't couldn't hold votes without the thousands of poll workers – around the state, but uh, you're exactly right. There is there is a schedule with a presidential primary that will be held March 12th, and then a general election, a general primary on June, um, May 24th, May 21st, I should say, of next year, and then a, a, then a runoff, if needed, June 18th. And Jim, that's how it usually is on presidential election years. In fact, Georgia was pushing to have an even earlier uh, presidential primary that would perhaps be held in January or, or February, Um, Democrats wanted to push Georgia up to the very forefront of of the early state voting calendars. Uh, Republicans balked at that idea instead of from from March 12th. But the reason for that earlier primary is, of course, Georgia wants to have some sort of say in uh, the presidential primary process. And if you hold the presidential primary in May, the nomination is already over. A little bit of interesting history around all this, Jim. Um, May is actually earlier than that state primary used to take place. It used to be in the middle of the summer, and here's why. It was at a time when Democrats controlled the legislature. They wanted to make sure that the state primary would be held when people were on vacation, not paying much attention to politics, and they felt they could mobilize their Democratic voters, get them out to the poll, and therefore uh, win 
uh, crucial primary uh, election. So the move to May was actually one that brought us closer to the presidential primary. By the way, there's no reason you couldn't vote for the state offices on presidential primary day either. But again, you don't want your candidates attached to a candidate for president who may not be popular enough to bring along the rest of the ticket. And also, Bill, this year is even more complicated because of the fact of redistricting that we talked about earlier in the show. We we don't even know what these districts will look like. And so candidates need a little bit more time to figure out if they even can qualify and you know for, for the districts they think they can run it. All right. Thank you for that. I just want to say... I just want to say Georgia has a lot of elections between all these different primaries, special elections, the runoff system. When I moved to Georgia, that was a big shock for me between Georgia from Florida to Georgia. A lot yeah. more elections, five elections on the calendar next year, if you count the general election, and of course, a potential runoff for the general election in December 3rd, 2024. Shane B., what else you got for us? Next up, we have... A call from Kira. She has some thoughts on the controversy over the proposed public safety training center. I'm thinking, you know, if we were to get the community more engaged and make sure that there's training so that the police officers are handling racial bias better um, and things like that, maybe the community and getting the community involved, maybe that would help make it a win-win for all of us. Kira. I'm completely on your side. I've said it on this show. I know Greg Greg and Patricia have agreed with this. He has weighed in. The effort to really, they need a good advertising campaign. They need to hire some big advertising firm to tell them how to win support for this training center, come up with messaging that makes it clear this isn't an effort to militarize the police even further, that there are valid reasons this should be in place, but they've just done a lousy job on this, right, Tia? Yeah, I think that there is a lot of concern. Um, quite frankly, the the people who supported the Public Safety Training Center in Atlanta haven't always done a good job trying to explain what will and what won't be there. But also, I think. And, and I think they would say that's what we're going to be doing at this new facility is training a world-class police force. But I think you can't have your cake and eat it, too. Yes, you will be doing race, race bias training, mental health training, all these things, bringing the community in. All these things will happen at that facility as planned. But they also have planned, you know, shooting ranges and simulations and things that people who are worried about the militarization of the police probably will still continue to be concerned about. It's both. And that's just the reality. All right. We appreciate the questions and um, we continue to invite you to send us your questions by going to our listener hotline. All right. It's time for our final feature of the week. One of our favorites, who's up and who's down. Tia Mitchell. Would you start us off with who's down? I'm going to say who's down are the members of Congress who have not been able to behave themselves. Keep your hands to yourself. (laughs) Remember your position. (laughs) And let's set a good example for the children watching at home. Oh, Tia, that's a lovely message. Greg Bluestein. Mine are going to be the opponents of Medicaid expansion because it seems like there could be some sort of compromise breakthrough brewing under the Gold Dome. We'll see. But our colleague at the AJC, Ariel Hart, wrote this week that there are negotiations underway for some sort of expansion in exchange for a political deal to roll back, roll back regulations that restrict who can open a new hospital in Georgia. So stay tuned. It, it, and, and since you cover the legislature so carefully— do you see that as a real potential? I see. I, there was a little buzz about it this past year, but there's more buzz about it going into the 2024 session. I know we'll be talking about this plenty more in Politically Georgia episodes to come, yeah, absolutely. but I wanted to throw that in there yeah. as something that is a potential hot spot. Yeah, thank you. Um, my who's down for the week um, is Ron DeSantis. He's been my down a couple times. He's back this time because CNN just released a new New Hampshire poll that now has him falling even further behind Nikki Haley for second place. And while Donald Trump continues to dominate the polls, 
in New Hampshire. You never know what's going to happen in a New Hampshire primary. And while Donald Trump, we all, you know, journalists say, oh, Trump looks like the winner. Maybe not. It could be that some surprises happen. Tia, who's up? I'll just say my who's up is also the members of Congress who can't seem to keep their hands to themselves <laughs> because they have a full week off. They had complained about working 10 weeks straight. Well, they have an entire week off. So I hope they use make the most of it because we got to get back to work. My who's up last night. I had the honor of attending the Atlanta Press Club's oh. Hall of Fame event, which honored five legends. Patricia Geniot, Corey Johnson, Robin Mead, the late Jack Nelson and WSB's Scott Slade. It was an incredible Wonderful night. Wonderful group. Congratulations to all of them. Okay, my who's shout up for the Corey's week. He's my famu rattler. Oh, he was amazing last night. So I have to give him a shout His out. His speech was amazing too. My who's up for the week is Charles Dickens. It's holiday season. There will literally be well over a thousand productions of the play A Christmas Carol done around the world. There are probably going to be a dozen of them in Atlanta itself. Charles Dickens wrote that in 1843, and it is generally considered to be the single most famous story ever written. I love it, and I love it because it's a story about redemption. And who doesn't want to hear about someone turning from selfishness to generosity? I love it, and I always think it's a great thing to see at Christmas time. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta weekdays at 10 a.m. Or look for Politically Georgia in your favorite podcast app sometime around one o'clock each afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again on Monday at 10 for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.